Good evening. Glad you've ventured back out tonight to join us as we continue our Sunday evening series called uh, The Training of the Twelve. We have endeavored over the last year to look at specifically all of the lessons that Jesus taught what I'm going to call his closest friends on earth. Uh, lessons on the cross, of denying self, taking up your cross, following him. Uh, lessons on even Judas and how Jesus, Jesus dealt with his betrayal. Uh, Jesus, or Steve has just finished uh, his uh, series talking about Jesus and people and how he interacted with them and some lessons that we can learn from that. This series I've entitled, Until I Return. And we are going to spend the last five lessons, the last five weeks of 2015, uh, uh, this week and then next week we'll have the singing and then then all of Sunday nights in December, looking at the final lessons that Jesus taught his disciples, his friends. Take for a moment and imagine if you could possibly know the exact day that you would die. For some reason, you were able to come into that knowledge. What would you do differently between now and that day? There's an interesting book written by a CEO named Eugene O'Kelly. And Eugene is a type A, goals-oriented, hard-driving guy. Or he was. Became CEO of, uh, I think it was the company was called KPMG. I may have those initials wrong, but he was a, a go-getter. Always had an objective list, always had things to do, always had goals to achieve. Until in May of 2005, uh, a standard a normal checkup with his doctor uh, led to another uh, seeing a specialist and some more tests. And eventually determined that he had a very aggressive type of brain cancer. The doctor said, we can't do anything with this. You just need to get your affairs in order. And so that's what he did. And uh, in typical fashion for a a hard-driving type, a personality type, he decided he would use his remaining days in part and write a book on his experience about what it was like to face your final day. And he writes this book. It's fascinating. And, of course, it's all full of details and plans and all the things he needs to do and all the conversations he needs to have. And, of course, he ends up dying, so he doesn't complete the book. His wife completes the book. It's a fascinating read if you ever get the chance to read it because it gets you thinking about how you're planning and preparing for your final moments. But back to you. If you had that knowledge, how would you spend How would you spend the last days? My guess is you would probably get all of the important papers together, the life insurance and the will and and all of that, and get everything where it needed to be so those who would would take up all of those uh, final affairs, there would be no confusion. You would answer any questions. You'd get all of that stuff together. And then you'd probably make sure that you, you have children told them uniquely, 
that you love them and that you cared for them and how much you treasure them as your child. You tell that to your spouse, other important people in your life. But, but focus in on the last night. They say you're going to die on Tuesday, November the 24th. How do you spend tomorrow night? Well, the, this is the picture of the upper room, which is the, the setting in which all this takes place. For the next five lessons, we're going to be in that room with Jesus. And it is in that room where Jesus does many of the same things I think we would do. He enjoys probably his last meal, which happened to be Passover. He has around him his closest friends in the world. They have been together for three years. They have He has called them from all the way of these many different trades and, and many different paths to follow him. And they've done so dutifully for three years. They've learned lessons together. He's frustrated them. I'm sure they've laughed and cried. The, the, the stories that could have been told around that table about all the things which they had done. I would love to have been there. And in Jesus' mind, he understands quite clearly that this will be his last big moment with them. Before the dominoes start to fall. And all the succession of events must happen that has been planned from the beginning. It is no surprise. But in these final hours, Jesus says what I think are the utmost important lessons that, of course, he wants these 12 to learn. But I believe they are recorded for our benefit as well. And so I hope that you, obviously you've planned to join us for tonight, but I hope that you'll plan to continue joining us as we look at this room and what it meant. Talk a little bit about some history. Um, I often pick on preachers because they spend a lot of time answering questions that nobody's asking and... I can exactly see how that happens because I kind of geeked out in some study on this and I kind of had to realize, wait a second, that, that's very interesting for you, but you don't want to be here for two hours. So this is very concise. Culturally, upper rooms were not an uncommon thing. Um, they were rare, but it's not like this. there was just one upper room. There were uh, probably more than a handful. They were typically reserved for places of worship. And they were also reserved uh, by the people who are the most wealthy. Because of the construction requires very expensive to build uh, such uh, a room. And so typically only those who could afford to do so did. Or those who could pool their money together and, and build a place of worship did. Jeremiah 22, I'm not going to read the verse, but he references upper rooms in his time 
as something that the, uh, is a, was a possession of the, the rich. And uh, so it was something that was often used when you, uh, in the story of Mary and Joseph and their, there's no room at the inn. The word, the Greek word there for inn is the same word used for upper room. There's about three different words can be translated that way. And the basic idea is that these were places where people could gather when there were events, large festivities, or if they needed a place to stay. So um, they were prevalent in the city and would have been. The occurrences with Jesus and the apostles are in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22, and John chapters 13 through 17. Now, for this study, we're only going to be in John. And you might assume there's some deep theological reason for that, and there is, because I want to. I think it'll be easier if we're just centered on one text, and I think it'll be simpler as we go through the lesson. So we're just going to focus on the Gospel of John. And what I love, one of the commentators said John spends, you know, the book of John is 21 chapters, and he spends uh, five of them, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, in the upper room. He spends 25% of his book, of his gospel account of Jesus in what is maybe arguably five hours that Jesus would have spent with them at that meal. I don't know if you read a lot, but one of the tricks of reading a lot, if you want to figure out the important part of the book, is open to the table of contents, figure out what the biggest chapter is, and you'll kind of get what the author is pointing to. If you want just a real, you know, look at the biggest chapter, read that. All right, well, this is John's biggest chapter. There's a message here when he spends so much time focusing on these details uh, that we would really benefit to drill down into. I have this picture up here that that is uh, what's commonly considered the upper room today. It's called the cynical. Now, you understand that that's what it's like today. That's not what it looked like back then. This was probably built in about the 12th century. Um, It has uh, the beautiful Gothic architecture and, and is a beautiful structure, but the place where they would have met for the upper room has been constructed and deconstructed many times over the century. So uh, this, isn't, uh, this might have been the place, this is thought to be the place, but it certainly didn't look like that uh, in its present form. We know that what happened in this room on that night in those few hours was significant enough that it was really a part of the church's DNA. You look even past the gospel accounts, uh, and through the book of Acts, you see uh, spotted references to continuing to meet in the upper room. Like something so powerful happened within that room that they didn't want to leave it. Important events did happen, such as the Passover meal, the washing of the disciples' feet, certain resurrection appearances of Jesus, Uh, The gathering of the disciples after Jesus had ascended, Acts chapter 1, verse 13, that it was there they would select Matthias to replace Judas. So it was a big deal. It was probably the place to be uh, for early Christianity. All right, let's turn to John chapter 13. 
And we're going to start in verses uh, 1 through 17. I just want to read and go through the text, so this uh, will not be on the PowerPoint slide, but I do hope you will read along. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Judas. I'm sorry. Prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. I knew that didn't sound right. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come up from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, the person who has a bath has had a bath, needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew that who was going to betray him, and that, why he, that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It was a picture that they certainly didn't expect. It was... Jesus' I think most impressionable lesson. Tonight we talk about the lesson of the towel. I'm going to say there are three steps to this lesson that Jesus tried to teach. Number one, lather up. When you're washing yourself or your car or your dog, or anything, the first thing that you have to do is apply a cleansing agent. 
I've got here a little bar of soap. And this is, um, in the story, the apostles are offended. You can almost sense that but this isn't right. You know, Steve talked this morning about giving honor to whom honor is due. Right? Imagine asking Gail to come here and, and start serving and washing people's feet. Totally offends our idea, right? Our sensibility. Yeah, well, that's exactly when Jesus, when Jesus got up from the table. That was the first clue that something was wrong. Because rabbis didn't get up. When Jesus was teaching, rabbis always taught from a seated position. I'm not a rabbi here, but, you know, this was the, this was the seat. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. He sat down and he taught them. So when Jesus is sitting at the table and he gets up, you know, there's got to be a hush come over the crowd. There's got to be, like, oh, Peter, what did you say? And he gets he removes the outer garment and he puts on this, this is not what he did, but he takes on uh, putting on this garment to clean his disciples' feet. Now, normally in a, in a social setting, when you ask someone to clean, a servant to clean the guest's feet, that was the job of a servant. And so when Jesus stands up, he's doing something unusual. And then he takes a knee. And he does the work of a servant. Now remember, all throughout the year we've talked about what the apostles thought that Jesus was going to do was to be a king. Kings don't bow. Kings don't scrub. Kings don't get up first. Everything that Jesus is doing, and then he takes a towel, and he begins to scrub the apostles' feet. And old Peter, good old Peter, saying what everybody's thinking, what are you doing? This isn't right. Jesus says, this has got to happen, Peter. Unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. So the first thing that we have to understand, just like the apostles did, is that this lesson is not just about doing good Christian service. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to let him scrub you. As the psalmist says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What Jesus came to do was to scrub And that means every single one of you, and me too, all need the cleansing power of Christ. This is not just about Jesus saying, you know, I think it's good for Christians to do service projects. That's a lesson we can learn. But Jesus, look at what John says in verse 1 of chapter 13. Having loved his own who who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We all, if you're a filler-outer, this is line number two. This won't be on the slide, okay? We all need to be washed by Jesus. You want to put scrubbed? That doesn't hurt my feelings either. 
And the reason is this. Every one of the disciples has dirty feet. When you come to Jesus, you come to him with your dirt. I remember many years ago, I don't exactly remember the lesson or the time, but I'm sure Steve will remember. Um, And it was a lesson I had, and I was using Steve as as an example. And I asked him to take off his, his shoes. Oh, young Toby. Oh, the lessons. So he, he, he obliged gracefully. But I can assure you now, having been with Steve about 15 years, he didn't want to do that. Because when we take off our shoes, we're exposing the part of our body which is kind of offensive. Sweaty, stinky. And occasionally your socks have holes in them. And you don't expect the preaching guy to say, hey, come here in front of everybody and take off your shoes. When Jesus comes to scrub us, he wants to deal with the stuff that you hide. The stuff that's offensive. The stuff that you don't want to show everyone else. That's where Jesus comes to first. All the disciples have dirty feet including us. Let's uh, take note of some other scriptures outside of John 13. This will maybe make this a little more clear. Titus chapter 3. Verses, uh, starting in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, of our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul here would remind the church at Corinth that they were not always a clean people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you're in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, another word for that is unclean, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Catch this here. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. This idea of washing and cleansing is so prevalent to followers of, followers of Jesus that sometimes I think we can quickly forget that we all need washing. We all have dirt, deep, hidden, grungy, stinky, smelly dirt. And if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be willing to lather up. 
to let him scrub you and make you clean, to let him completely scrub out all of the dirt of your heart and your soul. The beautiful thing, John 13, verses 4 through 12, this is the next step here in the scriptures, is that this is not just a moment that happened in the upper room. This is a, this is a picture of gospel happening here in this moment, in this time. Verses, uh, if you're following along or read on the screen, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In this uh, picture of the gospel, we get five, five things here that I see in the picture that to me, I mean, every time someone goes up here, this is the picture of what happened there. This is a picture of gospel. Um, one commentator opened, up, opened this to my eyes, and I thought, man, that's just so good. First is, he came down. Uh, the, verse, the words that I highlighted there was, he got up. Again, like I said, when, when he got up, that was, a, that, was a, that was a humbling thing for a teacher and a rabbi to do. That wasn't normal. But beyond that, Philippians chapter 2 says that he came down and, and took on appearance as a man and, and became flesh, became God with us. So the first step is he came down. The second step is he humbled himself. And we talked about he took off the outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. This is a humbling thing. This is me asking you know, Steve to take off his shoes. This is a humbling type of action um, that borders on disgraceful. Number three, he washed us. He began to wash his disciples' feet. It's what the text says in verse five. Then number four, he was resurrected. When he had finished washing, John says, <clears throat> he put on his clothes. There's a, there's a resurrection body. Paul will say in Galatians 3 that when you put on Christ, there's a new creation there. And I think that's true now, but I think that's true in the future. Of course, our resurrection bodies will be, will be full and complete and perfect. And this is what Jesus, I think is the picture that we're getting from John. Number five, he returned. He returned to his place, which is what we... The picture we get from Philippians 2. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let's see if we can't get this picture a little further of the five steps, the five gospel pictures that we get. Philippians chapter 2. And we are going to start. I want to start in verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So it's a coming down. Let's do it from this way. It's a coming down and it's a going up. Now, the baptistry that I was baptized in was a perfect picture of this because it had stairs on both sides. And some of you probably know those baptistries too. But the same thing happens in this one. They start up there. They go down. They're washed, and they go back up. Uh, if you will keep that picture in mind of what Jesus did, what the Philippians 2 says was his mission, and what happens here in the upper room is also the very same thing that happens in us. He came down, he humbled himself, he washed us, he was resurrected, and then he returned. This gives us a model to live by. It is, it is not just a moment. I mean, you can think back to the moment when that happened for you, whether it was here or elsewhere. But it's a, moment, it's, a, it's a model of how we live. We come down, we humble ourselves. We help those who need the scrubbing and the beautiful overflowing grace of Jesus so that they may know resurrection, so that they may know life and be returned to their father. Once we grasp what he did, now go back to Philippians 2. I'm sure you stayed right there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> we're going to read verses 1 through 8. It's always read these like verses 1 through 11, but if we start at verse 6 and read the verse 11 and then back up, we figure it out, in my opinion. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Remember John said he loved them to the end? Being one in spirit and in purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also toward the interests of others. Now, as you read that and you're thinking back to the upper room and what Jesus did, it's a beautiful picture. It encourages us for unity and for humility and working together. But that doesn't happen unless you understand what Jesus did when he took the basin and he took the towel and he washed the feet of the disciples. I hope that will help you and encourage you in your Christian living. Because I think this needs to be something that we continually remember. Step two. We need to rinse. John chapter 13 verses 12 through 14. Jesus says this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your Feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Okay, you're filling in the blank, you want to follow along. Once washed, we, number one, we remember that we are clean. And most of the reason that people 
don't grow up in Christ, don't mature in the ministry of the work of the church, is they forget that they've been cleaned. Or they don't believe it. They just they sort of think, I, I know I was baptized, but I still want to hold on to the dirt, if that's okay. Hebrews, the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, says this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope with we, that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Don't forget that you've been Washed. This is what Paul said to the church of Corinth. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. First John chapter 1, verse 7. The apostle of love reminds us of this picture when he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's a continual washing action. When once washed, we must remember we are clean, number one. Number two, we, must, we have an opportunity to wash others in grace. In the, um, in the room that night... As I said, around the table, it was silent. As, as they watched, as Jesus, and I presume, went around one by one, from everyone from Peter to John to Judas. And as they watched in what had to have been silence, here's what they heard. Now, this will be more helpful if you will close your eyes. And to those of you who have already had your eyes closed for 20 minutes, thank you. So, um, close the rest of you. Close your eyes. And just listen to what they heard. What they heard that night was the continual running of water, the squeezing of the towel, as he continually poured out onto them that which their dirt needed most. I believe at some point we can all come to a a point where we say, I would love to have this picture of Jesus washing my feet. But wait now, there's a second step. That Jesus calls us then to be the same vessels of grace and love and overflowing mercy that he had upon them. Jesus didn't intend for that lesson to stop that night. What he was showing them was beyond a picture of service. It was the gospel message And woe unto them, woe unto us, if they had said, boy, I remember that night when Jesus washed my feet. And so he says, I want you to wash one another's feet. I want you to understand my love and my grace and let it overflow in your 
life, in your relationships, in your marriages, with your children, with your coworkers, in every human relationship you have, it ought to just overflow with grace and cleansing. Jesus calls us to wash one another's feet. Now, there are some folks who take that quite literally. I don't hold that against them. Uh, That's a wonderful thing. Uh, Actually, the person who loaned me this, it's actually a foot-washing basin. You say, how do you know it's a foot-washing basin? Because it's a basin where you put your feet to be washed. They have a foot-washing service. And someone grabs a towel and they wash. They put men on one side and women on the other. And they go through that. And everybody uses the same water. And you say, wait, are you saying we have to do that? No. I don't think it's a bad thing. Certainly, because the person who loaned this to me went on to describe that before they do that, they go through a process of working their issues out with one another. Because you might have to wash somebody's feet that you don't particularly care for. You might have to humble yourself. Well, I'm not saying we have to do it uh, as far as a literal. I do think the grace and love and mercy that we share in the gospel message is the, the deeper message that Jesus was trying to get at. I washed you, now I need you to wash others. Which leads us to our third point, which is uh, to repeat. Once you have lathered, once you have rinsed, then you go and repeat. You do the same thing. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Which is always the hard part of the sermon, right? It's easy to explain the historical and textual context. It's easy to talk about all the things that happened at this moment. But it's harder still to take a knee, to take a towel, to serve and love those who don't deserve it, who don't expect it, but they do need it as much as you and I need it. And we're called to do this just as Jesus called the apostles to do that over and over again. It's not just the knowing it's the doing. The only way to, keep, to be blessed from washing is to keep washing, to keep pouring. So tonight I want to challenge you with this. I, I, there were three people around that table that would have been a challenge to, when I, when I, if I would imagine them taking off their stinky sandal and holding their dirt, Covered foot, sweaty, smelly, gross as it was. Here's the three that I think of that would have had some, it would have caused pause. Here's the three for you. Number one, John. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. By all indications, he was probably Jesus' most, as Forrest Gump would say, my most best good friend. They were close. And there are going to be people that you love and that love you in return. The closest people in the world are still people you need to serve, to wash, to love, and to pour. Number two, Peter. Peter represents the people who love us poorly, right? Don't wash my feet. Okay, wash my body. 
Lord, what are you talking about dying? I'll, I'll, I'll go with you to the death. Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. People who mean well, but they need a lot of grace. The people who love us poorly are our Peters, number two. And number three, Judas. Those are the people who will and have betrayed us and hurt us. And they may not ever repent, but Jesus calls us to wash them too. Now, there just happens to be a holiday coming up where you may have a few Peters and Johns and Judases sitting around a table eating a meal. I'll let you uh, apply that if you will, but I believe every day has an opportunity to serve, to love, to wash, to extend grace, to extend the cleansing power, to repeat the gospel message of descending, humiliating ourselves, being washed, finding new life and new resurrection, and then returning. May we not forget lesson one of the upper room is to cleanse. If you have any need tonight, be it you have dirt in your life that uh, you've tried to get around by covering up, by ignoring, by hoping that it would just go away on its own, or maybe by trying to do enough good things that it would just be... Held in the balance, you need to know that you need the scrubbing power of Jesus. Or if you're a person who's been scrubbed, you've been in the water, but you've rolled around in the pig pen and it's time to get serious about being clean again. I hope you'll take seriously. If you just need prayer for strength and encouragement to be more effective in your ministry of pouring out and scrubbing and cleansing and helping others to know the beautiful Messiah who we serve. Uh, We'll be glad to help you with that as well. Whatever your need is, please come. I'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.